the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Truly alarming stats on teen girls' mental health. And then Aubrey and I share Bible passages that are encouraging or challenging us. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Wednesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Is there, what is the day after uh, Valentine's Day? Is Valentine's it, Day. No, it's like the day of regret, oh, probably. No, it's it's uh, <laughs> Valentine's Day. You celebrate with your friends. You send gifts to your nephews and your nieces. It's Valentine's Day. How is that different than your Galentine's Day the day before That's Valentine's? That's for girls. That's for the ladies in your life, the girl squad in your life. Valentine's Day is for like the cute little ones in your life. Yeah, this all feels made up now. Right, just go with it. You just got to, I don't know if you know about um, improv, you just go yes and. So you're supposed to be like, that's awesome, Aubrey. And you're So I'll do yes. here. Go ahead. Tell me it's Valentine's <laughs> Day. Go ahead. Tell it's me and Valentine- I'll do It's Valentine's Day. Oh, yes. And I will not observe it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well there done, you go. sir. Well played. There well you played. go. But what we are glad is we are glad that you are joining us today. If you've missed That's any right. of our shows this week, uh, go get the podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. That really does help us out a bunch. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Common Good Talk. We're glad that you're with us. Aubrey, I do want to start. Man, I was reading a, a Wall Street Journal article the other day, and it was really sobering. So let me just read to you. This has to do with teenagers' mental health. Uh, and are you ready? These stats, they're going to they're gonna weigh heavy on you. Are you ready for this? Uh-oh. Nearly three out of five high school girls in the United States who were survey, surveyed reported feelings of persistent sadness or hopelessness in 2021, a roughly 60% increase over the past decade, new research from the CDC found. Though both high school girls and boys reported experiencing mental health challenges, girls reported record high levels of sexual violence, sadness, and suicide risk. In 2021, 57% of high school girls reported experiencing persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness mm-hmm. compared to 36% just a decade ago. Man. All right, Aubrey, this one's going to be heavy. 30% of these girls reported that they, quote, seriously considered attempting suicide in 2021, oh. up from 19% in 2011. Oh. All of the data also for boys went up by similar amounts, they were just lower, right? But it's gotcha. also went gotcha. up over the last decade. This led Kathleen Ethier, director of CDC's Division of Adolescent and School Health, to say these data show that the mental health crisis among young people mm. continues. So it, oh, the story continues to man. go on. This was no small survey. There uh, was over 17,000 high school students who were surveyed. Uh, 
and it just goes on and Does on and on. Does the article go on to suggest any whys? I mean, I have some guesses, like you've heard this, especially coming out of the isolation of COVID and social media. Um, do they give any of those those types of underlying reasons? They do not in this survey. Uh, I think what it would be is a couple things. Um, COVID, as you said, mm-hmm. this is the year after 2021. We were still feeling the effects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think social media and just technology as a whole yeah. is probably an underreported, undervalued symptom yeah. of this. Yeah. Um, I don't know how else to put it, Aubrey. I just think it's harder to be an adolescent these days. I think it is harder to be a teenager than it was even when you and I were teenagers. Life is more complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to talk about another story here later on in the show about sexual and gender identity and the crisis that that's causing in adolescence. I think that that we have have made our kids and and our teenagers grow up too quickly. Yes. And their minds aren't equipped to do it. And so I think it's a stew. I don't know. Do you think I missed anything? I, I think it's I think I hit some of the big ones. I, yeah. I mean, I there is no doubt because we've covered some of these stories that the the high level of anxiety and depression connected to social media is just shocking. And then I think. I think the difficult part is then what do you do? Like it's such a part of life now, but we read all the statistics that it's so terrible for adolescents. Mm-hmm. It's it almost to me feels like lawmakers need to step in and start saying. I mean, parents need to step in first and foremost. Like, don't hear me. I understand that, but to the point where like this is now the CDC is getting involved. Like at what point do we say kids should just not be on social media or technology until Mm -hmm. they're adults? Like their lives are at stake now. This is life or death. And I also, you know, not to over spiritualize it, but not to under spiritualize it. Like I think anything that leads to death, suicide, there is a demonic presence there that we cannot ignore. Mm. There's some spirit of despair there that, is really attacking this generation. And so to be aware and be mindful and to to pray and also talk holistically about like our kids getting mental health, our kids getting physical health, our kids stepping away from their screens, like what are the steps so that we can from all angles help protect our teenagers? It's got to happen instead of like you said treating them like they're adults. Yeah. We represent them on TV like they're adults. We uh, expect them to be making really difficult adult decisions when their brains are still being formed. I I do think you're right that it is harder to be a teenager today than it has ever been. And I'm sure each generation says that, but I know this is harder than when no you and I were teens. teens. Yeah. I know it yeah. is. So I, I guess the $64,000 question is, what to do about it. Let's tackle this as people who are parents of teenagers okay. and who yeah. are pastors yeah. wanting to help parents and teenagers and do something different. What, so I guess let's really take it as parents. What do you okay. do with this information? Yeah. I think you can't get away from conversation with your family, right? So like there has to be just an open table 
whether it's your dinner table, whether it's when you're putting the kids to bed at night, where you're just talking about this stuff with them, letting them know, hey, this is the reality. You guys might not feel it. I don't want to put something on you that isn't there. But like, let's chat about this and let's be open about it and pour into your kids with intentionality and love. It can be very easy to assume that our teenagers are okay. And I would say, I don't know, Brian, because I don't have girls, but in my experience with teenage boys, they always act like they're fine. They're That's right. Like, yeah, it's fine. I'm fine. Yep. Yeah, no. Yeah, everything. But when you like give them space to talk about what's really going on in their life, and teenage boys aren't necessarily going to sit across the table and talk, but like every time I'm driving with my kids or going on a walk with my kids and we're not looking at each other face to face, but side to side, that's mm-hmm. when they open up to me. Mm-hmm. And so I think just being aware of like, when do your kids feel safe to talk, creating that intentional space for them and, and not being naive about this stuff, but keeping those lines of communication and love and support really, mm-hmm. really open. You're, you're a little bit uh, like beyond me in these years, Brian, right. give me some wisdom. Yeah, I do. Th- it's funny you bring it up because Jackson, my one son, I got two girls and a boy. Uh, Jackson, my son, we, uh, I, it's become a running joke that we don't let him just say fine. Like that's it. What every yeah, teenage boy says, yeah. how was your day? Fine. How are you doing? Fine. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Girls are a little more demonstrative than that, but I, mm-hmm. Aubrey, I've said this before on this show. I, I think we can overcomplicate things sometimes. I think the most important thing as parents to teenagers is just presence. It's them knowing that you you're there for them, that you're going to go to their events. You're going to talk to them. You're going to uh, love them. They know that they're supported. You might not always agree with them, but we're going to have hard conversations, but I'm also going to just prioritize at this stage of life being with you instead of even things like my own career or my own fun. Like I'm going to prioritize you. I would wonder it would be fascinating to see a cross section mm. of this data with, you know, broken homes or mm. parental involvement or, yeah. you know, church, you, whatever, all of these things. I think um, all of those things you said, like your kids know they're willing to open up to you as teenage boys, even if it's on a walk or something, because right. they know that you're there for them. You're in their corner. You've been there every day. Right. Um, but man, as church leaders, but more so as parents, like what, the biggest thing we can't do is put our head in the sand and go, mm. oh, everybody's fine. Look at them. Right. They're on their phone over there. They're doing great. Mm. Uh, that is that is not an option. So going to keep wrestling with this. And Aubrey, uh, staying on the difficult conversations, one of the things that is really playing into this is the question of sexuality. Mm. And we saw a fascinating article, a first-person article written at a place called The Free Press uh, that deals with this. In fact, this author, Jamie Reed, said, I thought I was saving trans kids. Now I'm blowing the whistle. I want to have that conversation next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. I'm Aubrey and I just finished a conversation, uh, an ongoing conversation about the mental health crisis with teenagers and the fact that we, and this plays so well into what we're about to read here, Aubrey, because we put upon teenagers the ability to make adult decisions and we put upon teenagers the ability to think as adults. And yeah. I think that's one of the worst things we've done to kids. Yeah. Uh, if you have elementary school kids, you know that what we used to ask of third graders, we now ask of first graders. What we used to ask of seventh graders, we now ask of fifth graders. Oh. And it goes up and up and up. And they're breaking. They are breaking. Yeah. And 
one of the issues out there is about uh, sexuality, issues of gender, and at what age can kids make decisions? So let me just read to you, because Aubrey, we haven't, we've talked about this, but we haven't really dove headlong into this subject. Uh, somebody by the name of Jamie Reed wrote this. I thought I was saving trans kids. Now I'm blowing the whistle. Let me just read her story a little bit. She said, I'm a 42-year-old St. Louis native, a queer woman, and politically to the left of Bernie Sanders. My worldview has deeply shaped my career. I've spent my professional life providing counseling to vulnerable populations, children in foster care, sexual minorities, and the poor. For almost four years, I worked at Washington University School of Medicine Division of Infectious Diseases, with teens and young adults who were HIV positive. Many of them were trans or otherwise gender non-conforming, and I could relate. Through childhood and adolescence, I did a lot of gender questioning myself. I'm now married to a trans man, and together we're raising my two biological children from a previous marriage and three foster children we hope to adopt. All of that led in 2018 to me to become a case manager at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. The center's working assumption was that earlier, the earlier you treat kids with gender dysphoria, the more anguish you can prevent later. This premise was shared by the center's doctors and therapists. Giving their expertise, I assume that abundant evidence backed this consensus. During the four years I worked at the clinic as a case manager, I was responsible for patient intake and oversight. Around a thousand distressed young people came through the doors. The majority of them received hormone prescriptions that can have life-altering consequences, including sterility. Mm. I left the clinic in November of last year because I could no longer participate in what was happening there. By the time I departed, I was certain that the way the American medical system is treating these patients is the opposite of the promise we make to, quote, do no harm. Instead, we are permanently harming the vulnerable patients in our care. Today, I am speaking out. And she goes on. This is a very long article. So if you want it, it's at a place called uh, The Free Press. Wow. dot com uh it's the fp dot com you can find it there but wow. uh aubrey this is somebody this isn't a conservative christian this right. isn't right. uh this isn't somebody writing for the gospel coalition or right. for desiring god uh this is somebody who uh and you giggled at it called themselves left of bernie sanders yeah. and yeah. saw this work as a less job more personal crusade mm-hmm. more like i'm on the passion side of project. right yeah. a passion project if you will but left there after 4 years going we are we are permanently harming children who shouldn't be making this decision later on she cites a study out of england that said in england a third of the P- of the kids and teenagers getting this sort of treatment a third of them were found to be on the autism spectrum yeah this is a huge this is huge research that's coming out and in fact the i don't mean to cut you off but the no, autism go. Yeah. the autism community is being uh, and I'm not one to talk like this. So hear me when I say this. The autism community is being targeted by the trans community as a like, you belong here. You're welcome mm. here. Um, and so there is a massive uh, statistic or massive majority of autistic girls, especially that end up identifying as boys or, you know, questioning their gender because there's some connection there. It's it's 
very it's very mm. very interesting anyway go ahead no i i think there's multiple different ways to attack this story in the sense of this is one of the many things that is dark about our culture right now, what we're doing to our kids. But I I guess I want to start by looping it back to what we just talked about and the mental health crisis of our kids that somewhere it became not only permissible, but I would call it encouraged for our kids to be making adult decisions and to be, to be expected to make adult decisions. Like, think about this. If a decade ago, Aubrey, or, or a generation ago, I'd said to you, we're letting kids, preteens, teenagers, sometimes with their parents' consent, sometimes without, make physical and hormonal decisions that will affect the rest of their lives, we would have said, our culture's crazy. That well, is and crazy. I, and I want you to remember being a teenager, and this is going to sound jokey, but like, here where I'm going with this. If people let me make permanent decisions that I wanted to make as a teenager, I would have like a Winnie the Pooh tattoo and I would be married to a really bad high school boyfriend. And again, that's kind of jokey. So forgive me for being facetious when we're talking about a heavy topic. But the point is to say like our brains are not developed as teenagers. And so to put on kids the responsibility of making very adult, very permanent life altering decisions is not fair to those kids. What Mm. good adults do is say, hey, I want to walk with you through this hard thing you're struggling with, these questions you're asking. We're not going to do anything permanent until your brain has fully matured and your Mm -hmm. frontal lobe is fully developed, and then we're going to talk about some of these decisions then, like the permanent part of it. Right now, we're going to get you some therapy. People are going to love you. We're going to help you through these hard things. But just... uh, Anyway, it's fascinating to me that this is coming from the woman that it's coming from. Absolutely. That adds credence to it, I would say. That adds – somewhere along the way as a culture, we've also decided to use our kids as pawns in the culture wars. And we do this on on the church side too. But in this particular conversation, it feels as if anything that says slow down, anything that says wait, anything that says – you know what, we should have a deep conversation about what's best for kids and teenagers is thrown away in the in the word of like, nope, this is a culture issue that has yeah. to be won. And our kids, uh, our producer asked us, what is history going to say? I hope history looks back at our at our this season and says, you guys were crazy because yeah. the alternative is that it gets worse right, or gets right. more accepted. Right. I hope culture looks back at us and says, the things you guys did to teenagers and to kids was unconscionable, not just yeah. in this topic, but across the board. But particularly in this topic, I hope history looks back and says, you guys should repent. And, and yeah, thankfully, that was child abuse. And thankfully, future generations have tried to fix it. My fear is that this is a ball that's going to keep rolling and history is going to look back and go, what took you so long to go even further? And man, these are the things when you read, you do feel like just darkness and evil. It's just is hard. Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, reading more, reading more of this, this woman's story, she, you know, we can't go into everything she says because, like you said, it's a long article. But she also talks about the lack of regard for the rights of parents making these decisions. And you mentioned this, that sometimes this treatment uh, for children, like giving them estrogen blockers or uh, other blockers, happens without the parents' consent. That's right. And I – man, I, like if that alone doesn't kind of wake us up, I'm not mm-hmm. sure what will.
Absolutely. And so uh, just one, uh, it's a hard story. You and I like to just laugh on this show. We like to just joke around. And I know we started today's show with uh, mental health issues of our students. And then this topic, I think they're linked together. It's Mm -hmm. this, what are we doing to our kids? Uh, Again, you can find this uh, at the free press at frpress.com. This really long, well-written article written by someone like you said who it's surprising to read about the author you know what she doesn't say in this that i've changed my mind about transgenderism that i've changed my she's just saying i can't believe what we're doing to kids kids. and i find that i find that to be really powerful hey everybody welcome back to the common good my name is aubrey sampson alongside my co-host brian from we are thrilled today to be joined by Frederic Jean-Baptiste. She's from Child Protection Program in Haiti. She's working with Changing the Way We Care to try to um, really make sense of the best way to care for kids in Haiti and also around the world. There's a lot of vulnerable children in Haiti, and so we want to hear from her. Frederic, thanks so much for being here with us today. We're so honored to have you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about... Um, First of all, just yourself and your organization, what, what you're doing with your work in Haiti. Okay. Um, Changing the Way We Care is, uh, is an initiative of Catholic Relief Services, CRS, and Maestro um, International with partners around the world. I, as you mentioned at the top, I'm Frédéric Jean-Baptiste. Um, I'm based in Haiti, working with this, with this initiative, and our work is mainly to... Um, to promote family-based care, so to prevent, we do family, we do work for to prevent family separation, and children who are already separated, we conduct field retracing family members so they can feel supported and the children can go back home. Mm. And Frederic, uh, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, help us understand how that just highlighted this problem of orphanages and kids and foster care and everything. Help us understand what role the 2010 earthquake right. played. So the earthquake, it's, been, it's already been 13 years. So before the earthquake in 2010, wow. nationwide mm-hmm. orphanages in Haiti, there were about 300. And following the earthquake, over two, three years it, there was a huge boom, about 150% increase in these facilities. Yes, there was a need because children were separated mm-hmm. from families. Um, but since then, the work has been, it's been difficult, but there is some progress. And there, there was progress in reconnecting, retracing families and making sure that the children can go back home. Because the best way, the better place for a child to, to, to grow is within their family. Um, so with the earthquake mm. and all the orphanages that came about, and most of them being privately funded, um, it was re- it got really out of control. And yes, families do turn to orphanages um, for because they do. They sometimes they think that the orphanages can offer better care than they can. It could be to have three meals a day um, for their children, or that children would be able to access. Education, they would be able to go to school or that they would be able to receive um, health care. So, but ever since then, IBERS, um, which is the institute for, it is basically the child protection arm of the Haitian government. 
they've been making a push for family-based care. So family-based care is that, that is that children are at home. So the work has been to work with orphanages. They conducted an evaluation, for example, in 2017, and they saw out of the 754 orphanages that they evaluated, only about 30 of them were meeting standards of care. All the remaining of those 750, they were not where they should be. So they're not the best alternative for children. So the work has been since then to work with orphanages to support them in what we call transitioning to family-based care. And by transition, it is a work that basically they're stopping, they're stopping their work as an orphanage, welcoming children in their institution, but the work can continue in supporting children within their families instead of separating them. So, Frederick, let me ask you kind of a, this is just a question not understanding totally what's going on. When you find out that there are family members of these children in the community, is part of your work to go initiate a conversation with them? Hey, we think this child would be better suited to be in your home. Like, Give us some specifics on how you work to reunite children and their families. That's a great question, and thank you for thinking of that. Um, it does give a, a good kind of lets me go in like in the nitty-gritty of the work that we do. So it is case management. So the mm-hmm. first step is to identify the child. Okay. So it would be, for example, if you're working with an orphanage for their transformation in the way that they care, we identify the children within this institution. We conduct a child assessment, and then we start going on the field to do family tracing based on clues that sometimes the children provide, Sometimes the orphanages provide, and at times it is easier. We have um, sometimes the orphanages directly connect us to the family members, but sometimes it is indeed uh, investigative work to connect all the dots to find family members. So once we do, it's to Mm -hmm. conduct an evaluation of the family as well. So in doing this evaluation, is to understand the key reason for that first separation, because at times even finding the family, it's not always automatically that we find the families that we're going to place the child back home. It's identifying that key reason that generated that separation. And at times the situation um, is within the home and we're not able to address. Uh, So we do an assessment of the family and that's when we start devising a case plan, a plan. Um, So the case plan itself is how to strengthen the family and how to strengthen the child as well. So there's a mediation work, meaning with the child to see if they're ready to go back home. How do they feel about their families? What do they remember about the families? Um, And on the family side, it's to have conversations as well to understand, aside from understanding what was the main, the key driver for that separation. And at times it is poverty. It could be a misunderstanding of what orphanages are or what orphanages provide or can provide. Mm. Um, at times, mm. it's, eh, it's just the orphanages was there and I think it would provide better care for my child. Um, so um, it's, yeah. it's work. Yeah. It takes time. It's not something that we can just go and finish within a month. Um, on our side, we're changing the way we care. We do about, about 18 no. months of monitoring. So once we do the case plan and the support and the, the, the support for the families that includes um, micro lending groups, putting in place micro lending groups in the communities, 
um, working with um, with a gatekeep to put in place gatekeeping um, a gatekeeping mechanism that involves setting up um, protection um, comité. Um, that's the word. I always stumbled on comité. <laughs> so I'm putting in together um, child protection um, committee. Voila. Uh, so they are basically local leaders who are who mm. can connect families with resources when needed. Um, so yeah. there's also the side of um, education, so positive parenting curriculum for the family members. And the curriculum that we use, it's mm, a 14-session program where the parents come with the child and they learn how to, um, to create the safe space for the child, but also how to... Um, how to connect, how to discipline without, how to not result um, to harsh discipline. So there's also financial training for the family so they can, mm-hmm. how they can manage their finances. And it also comes with cash support for the families. And as we set up the plan, if the families, are, if the families agree, then we can do the placement, the reunification. And with monitoring, we can go towards case closure. So that's a long step. <laughs> Oh, that's so fantastic. Yeah, no, that's fantastic, Frederick. Uh, Frederick, as we close, as we end our time with you, it's been so great to have you. How can our listeners find out more about changing the way we care? Is there a website, social media, something like that we can connect with? Uh, Yeah, definitely. So it's changingthewaywecare.org. And there we can find the the interventions in several countries. So we have um, Guatemala, for example, Kenya, Haiti, Moldova. So what I think what the key message is here for to share, I would like to share with the viewers or the listeners, I should say, (laughs) is that for for folks who are currently supporting residential care facilities like orphanages, we encourage them to reach out to orphanages to express their interest in supporting them to reintegrate children into safe and nurturing families. So changing the way we care, for example, is a way that there are resources that are available to them, the donors and the orphanages, so they can start supporting children to live within families. So that's the key message I would like to share. Oh, I love that. That's such a that's such a strong message. Thank you so much, Frederick, for your work. And thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate having you. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Brian. Take care. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.